RUF is here. Uh, this semester we are uh, taking an in-depth look. We're doing something we've never done before. We're preaching through a gospel. There are four in the New Testament. These are four different accounts of the life and ministry and death of Jesus. And uh, I could give you good reasons for why there are four different accounts. I'm not going to do that right now. Um, but we're choosing Mark because it's the shortest, frankly. Just pure pragmatism here. Uh, we have a certain amount of time in the semester. And uh, our goal is to get through this gospel. Because I want you to wrestle with a couple different things. Who is Jesus? What was he about? And why did he die? And I think by looking at an entire gospel together, we can get the best uh, deal. Um, so we're going to try and do all of Mark. I'll have to be selective. I can't preach every text. Um, but the goal as we go along is to, to work at answering those three questions. Who is Jesus? What is he about? And why did he die? And what you're going to find as we go along this semester is that the text is going to ask a question back. It'll ask you all kinds of questions. But one in particular, and it's a question that Jesus himself asked his disciples uh, about halfway through the story. They've been following him for, for some time. And, uh, and Jesus just asked them, who do you think I am? Who do you say that I am? And uh, Mark is going to ask that of you. Who do you, who do you believe Jesus is? And we're going to have a very good introduction to that question uh, in today's passage. Our passage is Mark chapter 1, and it's actually 1, 1 through 15. I failed to provide the right verses. That's not your fault, Steve. Okay. But uh, y'all are very bright, and you're capable of both reading and listening. So I will read verse 15, and you will hear it. All right. Let's, uh, let's read and listen to God's word. The beginning of the gospel of Jesus Christ, the Son of God. As it's written in Isaiah the prophet, Behold, I send my messenger before your face, who will prepare your way. The voice of one crying in the wilderness, Prepare the way of the Lord, make his path straight. John appeared, baptizing in the wilderness and proclaiming a baptism of repentance for the forgiveness of sins. And all the country of Judea and all Jerusalem were going out to him and were being baptized by him in the river Jordan confessing their sins. Now John was clothed with camel's hair and wore a leather belt around his waist and ate locusts and wild honey. And he preached, saying, After me comes he who is mightier than I, the strap of whose sandals I am not worthy to stoop down and untie. I have baptized you with water, but he will baptize you with the Holy Spirit. In those days Jesus came from Nazareth of Galilee and was baptized by John in the Jordan. When he came up out of the water, immediately he saw the heavens opening and the Spirit descending on him like a dove. And a voice came from heaven, You are my beloved Son, with you I am well pleased. The Spirit immediately drove him out into the wilderness, and he was in the wilderness forty days, being tempted by Satan. And he was with the wild animals, and the angels were ministering to him. Now after John was arrested, Jesus came into Galilee, proclaiming the gospel of God, and saying, The time is fulfilled. And the kingdom of God is at hand. Repent and believe in the gospel. All right, let's pray together. Lord, here in our first meeting, we uh, run right into some uh, heavy claims, Lord Jesus. We pray that you would show us uh, great things about yourself and your word. Uh, sharpen our minds and our hearts that uh, we may understand what you're saying. And uh, grant us faith to believe. Pray these things in your name, Lord Jesus. Amen. <clears throat> Perhaps you know this person I'm speaking of. He's been known to cure narcolepsy just by walking into a room. His organ donation card also lists his beard. He's a lover, not a fighter. 
But he's also a fighter, so don't get any ideas. The police often question them just because they find them interesting. His beard alone has experienced more than a lesser man's entire body. His blood smells like cologne. He is the most interesting man in the world. And the ad, of course, goes on to say, I don't often drink beer, but when I do, I drink Dos Equis. Um, it's a great television campaign, actually, being run by Dos Equis. It's a great strategy. Create a fictional character who is the most interesting man in the world and have him support, like, and endorse your product. It's a great strategy. And it's worked, actually. And I looked this up. In a year where the beer industry has suffered a 4% decline, Dos Equis has experienced a 22% increase in sales. It's very interesting. Why does it work? Why is it working? Uh, for one, it's just it's clever and semi-intelligent, humorous, ironic. Uh, it's a good ad campaign. It's fun to listen to. It's a little silly. We like it. I, I think part of it is also that uh, we're just really interested in interesting people. We are. We're a culture that's fascinated by people and interesting people and fame. This is risky, but I'll do it anyway because I could be completely wrong. How many of you have wikipedia some person in the last week because you're interested in finding out more about them? All right, about half of you. Yeah, I mean, we're interested in folks. We just do it. We want to know more about people. I've probably looked up five to ten different people in the last week, and that's normal for me. I find interesting people interesting. Um, which raises the question, it's a contentious question. You may actually argue with me that I shouldn't ask this question. Why aren't we more interested in Jesus? And um, because by all manner of objective criteria, he is perhaps one of the most interesting people in history. Um, and we'll go through some of those things this semester as we see things he claimed to have done and said. You'd have to conclude there's no one like this. You can also claim, rightly, what are you talking about, Derek? Uh, he's certainly um, great attention to paid to him. He's got millions of followers all over the world. We're meeting on a campus and talking about him. And that's true. Lots of us do find him interesting. Uh, but it's also the case, and particularly in our, in our current sort of post-Christian culture and in our cynical, critical, I'm not saying this is bad, this is just where we are, educational environment, um, that we also find Jesus and his message in the whole New Testament and all this Christianity stuff old, sort of old, archaic, irrelevant maybe, uh, starchy. Maybe worse, maybe offensive. It doesn't have the ability to shock or surprise me. And uh, for some of you that grew up in the church, and maybe even if you didn't, you just grew up in this sort of post-Christian nation, you, you got just enough of it growing up where you think you already know it. It's sort of like a vaccine. you got just enough to keep you from getting it. And you, and you think you're familiar, uh, but it's a faux familiarity. It's a faux familiarity. You, you think you know and you think you understand. It's enough to keep you from taking a deeper look and listening more carefully. And, and I want to argue tonight um, that this keeps us from really understanding and knowing who Jesus is and prizing him and embracing him sometimes. And I'm going to argue, and I have these little outlines around if you want them, um, that because Jesus is the most interesting man in history, we should carefully reconsider him and his message. That's my contention. Jesus is the most interesting man in history. And I will contend much greater things about him later in the semester. Um, but we need to more carefully consider who he is. So tonight we're going to look at three things. His unusual story, um, 
his unique personage. He's a unique person, and he's an uncharacteristic king. And I hope to move through this quickly. I always hope. Seldom do. Uh, but I'm going to try. So uh, it's an unusual story. And uh, a careful reader will notice this right off the beginning in verse 1. Go back. I got it right. Um, when we read the beginning of the gospel, um, you read the beginning of the gospel, and there are two clues there that we're talking about a new story. The beginning is something new, right? Something new is the beginning. And the word gospel itself, the word gospel means good news. It's a proclamation or a heralding of some news. And usually news is, by nature, it's new. Some event that you don't know yet. So it's news. So we've got a new beginning about news. This is great. This is a new thing. And then immediately in verse 2, you see that this is old. So which is it? Is it old or new? It's an unusual story. Uh, it's an old story. As it's written in Isaiah the prophet, Behold, I send my messenger before you who will prepare the way, crying in the wilderness, prepare the way of the Lord, make his path straight. 700 years old. 700 years prior to this, Isaiah wrote, predicted this. And this is part of an old story. This unusual story is an old story. It's a story, this, I'm going to summarize the Old Testament for you in two sentences, where God promises he's going to bless the world through a people. Israel. And they fail. And God sends him into exile. And he doesn't give up on the promise. He makes promises like this. That I myself, the Lord, will come. And before that, I'll send my messenger who will prepare the way. It's an old, old story. And for a long time, people avoided. 700 years. It's actually been 400 years since a prophet spoke. Since the beginning of Matthew or Mark and the end of the Old Testament. 400 years of silence. That's a long, boring story. So we're ready for the beginning. But it is an old story. And you need to know that Christianity doesn't begin with Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. It's part of an old story of God planning to redeem the world. And, uh, but we also see it's new. It's new. It is the beginning of the good news. Um, something new here. And we see in verse 7, John is this ancient relic thrown into the new. He's a part of the old story. He's the last prophet, if you will. Dressed like an old prophet. And what's he doing? He's pointing to the new reality. In verse 7, he preached saying, There's one coming after me mightier than I, the strap of whose sandals I'm not worthy to stoop down. Uh, John, this prophet of old, dressed like a prophet of old, um, is pointing to something new, saying there's a new reality, a new person about to break onto the scene. So you, you need to get ready. And when he comes, he's going to bring a remarkable new reality. This is verse 8. Uh, he will baptize you with the Holy Spirit. We're not going to say exactly what that is right now, but this is sort of new. This wasn't in the Old Testament. When he comes, we're going to have this new spiritual reality at work in our lives. And Jesus himself, when he finally does come in verses 14 and 15, uh, Jesus says, it's here, it's new. He proclaims the good news of God, the gospel. It's new. I'm here. Saying, the time is fulfilled. Now, now, right now, it's begun. The kingdom of God is at hand. God's kingdom is here. His reign has broken in. He is here now. This is new. And uh, this phrase, the kingdom of God, here, this new thing that's at hand, how do we understand it? What does it mean? I'm going to give you the quick, quick, quick explanation. Uh, the kingdom is God's reign. It's, uh, it's God's rule. And why is it at hand now? It's at hand now because Jesus is here. 
When Jesus says this, he's saying, uh, the kingdom is here because the king is here, and I am that king. But what kind of king is he? Not just any king, not just any kind of person. He's a unique person. And we, uh, we are introduced to that at the very beginning in the first verse. If you're a careful reader, especially a careful first century reader or Jew, you'd have read this. And um, actually, if you were a very faithful Jew, you would have read the first verse and been shocked out of your skin. You actually may have thrown the book down and burned it. Um, or you may have said, this is what I've been waiting for all my life. Um, what we see that Jesus is a unique person in the first verse, we see that he's fully human. Uh, for instance, his name is Jesus. Now, that actually has some divine implications. It means Yahweh saves. But it was a very common name in the first century. There are all kinds of people named Jesus. Just that there are all kinds of people named Jesus now. It's a sort of a normal name. It's a good name. It has a good meaning. But he was a person. And his, you know, Christ is not his last name. Um, that's his title. So he wasn't named at birth, Jesus Christ. That wasn't his birth certificate. Uh, this is a title that he earned through his life and death. And, and this is an important role. Even, even older than Isaiah's prophecy, God had said way back a thousand years before this to King David, um, I'm going to send another king like you. He'll be the perfect king. He'll be my anointed, chosen Messiah. He will shepherd my people. He will deliver them. And that person was called the Messiah, or the Christ. And that title, that role, is behind Jesus' name. Because Mark believes Jesus is the Christ. Now what you need to know is, we can understand that from purely human roles. Um, We can also understand that the Christ was a divine figure, but we don't have to at this point. We will later. But at this point, so far, we just have a human. A person that's fully human. And as we go on, we see there's more reasons to believe this. In in verse 9, during the ministry of John, all kinds of people are being baptized. And Jesus goes and gets baptized with all kinds of people. And, and Jesus is from a small, stinky, little backwater town named Nazareth of Galilee. And John, people actually make fun of Jesus because he's from Nazareth. Can anything good come from there? Uh, Jesus is a man, fully human. He is uh, baptized like others. He is tempted like others. Not, not quite like others in verses 12 and 13. Um, most of us don't go into a desert retreat for 40 days and get directly tempted by Satan. Um, if you're thinking about that, come and talk to me first. Um, but uh, the point is, uh, Jesus is fully human. He goes into the wilderness, he experiences hunger, and he's really tempted. And uh, this is sort of a clue. This is deep theology for, for first century Jews. They would have read this and said, oh, 40 days in the wilderness being tempted. That was us, the Old Testament people, wandering in the desert for 40 years, failing God, not being faithful. Well, Jesus does it, and he's faithful. Jesus is not only human, he's the ideal human. He's everything they should have been. So quick summary of all that. Jesus is human, fully human, not some other alien spiritual thing. He's fully man. And, going back to verse 1. Son of God. Jesus is fully divine. Fully God. Now, this is where the faithful Jew potentially would have gotten one, two, three, like five words in and said, what? And thrown it down and burned it. Or said, this is what I've been waiting for all my life. Uh, Mark believes that Jesus is fully divine. And I believe Jesus (laughs) believed he was fully divine. And was fully divine. 
But uh, you don't have to believe that yet as we're getting into the story. But there are other arguments in this text that Jesus is more than just a man. Um, We see it in verse 8. John's talking about someone who's going to come who will baptize with the Holy Spirit. John's been doing a ministry where he's baptizing people. They're confessing their sins. But it's not at all clear that his ministry is actually completely effectual. But their sins are really completely removed. Because the only person that can remove sins completely and forgive them is God. This is the Old Testament understanding of things. And this language that John's using in verse 8 of someone that's going to come and baptize with the Holy Spirit, it's actually a promise that God makes. It's a promise God makes late in the Old Testament. He basically tells his people, y'all are a mess. I know it. You know what? I'm going to work on it. I'm going to come and work directly in your hearts to the Spirit. I'm going to forgive you. I'm going to cleanse you. I'm going to regenerate you from the inside out. You want to change. You don't change from the outside in. You change from the inside out. I'm going to move in and work in your heart to change you. And John's saying, there's a person, a person coming who can do that. That's something only God can do. This is a divine activity that's going to happen. So, again, we see clues that Jesus is divine. And and there's another one, a little obvious. Oop, wrong direction. When Jesus is baptized, just like anyone else, all kinds of people are getting baptized, good people, bad people. Uh, Jesus got baptized with them, sort of identifying with them. He got baptized just like them, only it wasn't just like them. Because when he got baptized, something different happened. That didn't happen when any of you got baptized. If you haven't been baptized, this won't happen when you get baptized either. Uh, The heavens open, the Spirit descends, and a voice says, You're my beloved Son. Uh, God the Father speaks this fatherly approval upon the Son. And there's reasons for this. Uh, Jesus is about to go into 40 days of testing. He's going to be hungry. It's going to be tried. And after that, his good friend John, who's his cousin, is going to be arrested. And after that, Jesus is going to get a ministry to seek and save lost people and to heal brokenness and address sin. And people are actually going to hate him. So this is, this is a very appropriate time to tell your son you love him. Nevertheless, the point. God the Father says, you're my son. And so the portrait here, the portrait from Mark 1 is Jesus is fully human, fully divine, And this is the Christian claim. This is the Christian claim. And I need you to hear what I'm saying. This is potentially the most insane, ridiculous claim in the history of the world. I'm not saying it's not true. I believe it. But anyone who says this is liable to a couple of conclusions. They're crazy. They're mad. They're evil. They're a narcissist. Maybe they're telling the truth. Uh, what's the most ridiculous claim you've ever heard? You've probably heard a lot. Uh, there's one that's it's not the most ridiculous claim I've ever heard. It's, it's one I hear all the time, though, and it drives me crazy, and it is ridiculous. And it's because I'm a sports fan. And um, I'm, a, I'm a knowledgeable sports fan, so when people say this, it really drives me crazy. It's whenever like a college team that's pretty bad defeats a good college team, or when a professional team that's sort of okay defeats a, a good professional team, at the end of the game, some reporter, well-intentioned, will stick a mic in some player's face, and he will say, we shocked the world. And it drives me crazy. Because 
No, you didn't. The world doesn't care, actually. Seven billion people in the world, less than 5% of them watch this, unless it's the World Cup. And um, you didn't shock the world. And actually, I'm a sports fan, and I'm not even shocked. Because you're a professional, and you're supposed to win games. If you had flown, I would have been shocked. You're supposed to win games. I'm not shocked. You didn't shock the world. And it, for me, it just sort of demonstrates that we don't know what the word shocked means anymore. Um, we should be shocked by what Jesus says here. This should be shocking. We're really desensitized. We're used to being shocked in our culture. What Jesus says is remarkable. Yeah. Uh, you know, there are different religions in the world, and among some religions, uh, pantheistic religions, to say something like this, to say that I'm part of the divine, well, that's, of course you're part of the divine. But the, the Jewish Christian understanding of reality, of metaphysics, if you will, is completely different. God, a spiritual being, created this world and universe a material thing. God is free to interact with it, but he is not confused with it. Being confused with it is the pantheistic view that God enmeshes himself in the, in the world. God in the scriptures interacts with the world, but is never confused with it. So what Jesus is saying is, I'm fully human. I'm a creature and divine. That's completely different. And uh, one of our best thinkers of the last hundred years wrote, uh, God in the Jewish language, that meant being the being outside the world who had made it was infinitely different from anything else. When you grasp that, you see that what Jesus said was simply the most shocking thing that's ever been uttered by human lips. Um, and I think you need to wrestle with the weight of that. Whether you're a Christian or non-Christian, or skeptic. You need to feel the weight of that. Because if you're a Christian, this is the most amazing thing ever. If you're a non-Christian, this is a, a huge stumbling block, and you need to know it's there. Well, uh, how should such a person, if this is all true, let's assume this is all true, that Jesus really is fully human, filled divine, and he's the king coming with his kingdom. You know, play with me for just one second. If that was you, don't go too far. Because it's not. Um, you know, how would you make your entrance? Your appearance? I created all this. I'm going to come back and fix it. It's mine to begin with. Here I come. I come in style. And Jesus. It's not like that. He's an uncharacteristic king. Uh, he is a king of glory. We see that in verses 7 and 8. John says it. And John is later described by Jesus as one of the greatest of all men. John's a great man. He's a weird man. Okay? He is. He's weird. <laughs> He's a great man. And, um, but John says of Jesus, uh, After me comes he who is mightier than I, one marked with power. The strap of whose sandals I am not worthy to stoop down and untie. Now this is a cultural thing. Um, and I could bring up some current references that would help you understand, but they'd all be pretty inappropriate. So I'll just have to explain it. Um, yeah, the, the, the feet in the ancient world were just always dirty. They didn't take baths every day. You walked dirty, dusty streets where the main means of transportation was animals, which have a habit of not doing very clean things in the streets. Your feet were filthy all the time. And the only people that would ever remove someone's sandals would be servants. And in some parts of the world, it wasn't even okay for servants to remove shoes. It was too menial a task. And John is saying, I'm not worthy 
to be a servant to untie the shoes. Uh, this is one who is supremely worthy. Now, we have a hard time because we're pretty egalitarian. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I mean, you may make a million dollars, but yeah, we're not really that different. I mean, except for like re- really strange royalty, which live in you know, palaces somewhere. We all feel like, yeah, we're just pretty much people. We're not used to this kind of stuff. John says, we're on completely different levels. He is surpassingly uh, more worthy than I am, more powerful than I am. And um, Jesus doesn't come out and say this, but there are clues that, uh, you know, it's a reality. In verse 15, when he comes and the kingdom comes, Jesus says, yeah, sort of, hey, I'm a king, the kingdom's here, and um, actually that's significant enough for you to need to, like, change things. Uh, it, it would be good for you now to repent and believe. And I'll explain more about what this means in a second, but shortly what Jesus is saying is a new reality is here, and it's really important. And you should reorient everything around it. Yeah, uh, This is a weighty, glorious thing. But Jesus is an uncharacteristic king. You know, there have been times in the world where people fell asleep at night and woke up the next morning. And overnight there was a coup and everything was different. And you got like 12 hours to get on board or you're heading on the train to Siberia. Well, Jesus isn't like that, actually. He comes as a humble king. We see all kinds of clues to that. In verse 9, he's from the middle of nowhere. And he's baptized in the Jordan, just like everybody else. And he's tempted, like everybody else. Jesus identifies with people. He, he identifies with his people. He's with them. He suffered like them. Verses 12 and 13, where Jesus goes into the wilderness and tempted. Uh, the book of Hebrews makes a huge point of this. That Jesus suffered like we suffered, and he was tempted like we were tempted. So he knows what it's like to be us. It's an important thing. Um, and, and, and this, too. Uh, if the Christian story is true and what this text is telling us, uh, Jesus is God, created everything, and has decided to re-engage history in a different way and to come back and claim what's his and redeem it. And he could have come in any number of ways. Much more efficient and effective than this. I'm sort of lazy. So I said something like, you know what, I'm going to like light up the sky all over the world in fireworks that says, you've got 24 hours P.S. I love you. But you've only got 24 hours. You know, something like that. <laughs> Jesus does something much different and much more humble. Um, he comes preaching. Now, we live in a culture that doesn't necessarily love preaching. We find it somewhat offensive. Like, you're going to stop and tell me what's true? Uh, actually, this is very humble because when I tell you what I think is true, you can always say, hey, you're full of it and I don't believe you. And I can't actually change your mind. It's actually a very humble task. I can't make you believe anything. And Jesus, King of the Universe, says, you know what? I'm going to change the world by coming and sharing a message. It's pretty humble, actually. And that's what we have in Jesus, an uncharacteristic king. We have an unusual story, a unique person, an uncharacteristic king. And I contend, when you put all this together, and as we go throughout Mark, you're going to see he's not only the most interesting person, uh, he's the most important person. The most important person that history uh, swings on a fulcrum around the person of Jesus. So, uh, to bring things to a conclusion, uh, addressed all of you, sort of. Uh, if you're here, someone that's struggling, you're not really sure to think about all this stuff, you're confused, you're cynical, you think I'm crazy. Um, you know, I'm going to just say, again, uh, what Jesus claims here, what Mark claims with Jesus, is one of the most shocking things, I think, that's ever been said in human history.
I'll grant you that. I also want you to wrestle with the reality, as we move through Mark, that Jesus isn't crazy or evil. And he cannot be just a good teacher. Good teachers don't say this stuff about themselves. You have to wrestle. I don't see you have to come to any kind of conclusion imminently. Uh, but, but you need to wrestle with the claim here. It's, it's important. Um, don't assume you already understand it or know it. Read the text. Come this semester. Ask questions. Um, as C.S. Lewis wrote, a man, this man was either the son of God or a madman or something worse. But you can't do anything. You can't not do something. You, you do have to make a choice. You don't have to make a choice now. But you need to inform yourself and study and decide. I think a reasonable thinking person in this world that has the ability to do so needs to make up their mind about what Jesus says at some point. And uh, for the rest of you, that you're pretty sure you you got me. Yeah, I understand. I love Jesus. Um, just one question. And uh, it's pretty simple. Is, is this what I just shared good news to you? Is it actually good news to you? Or are you so familiar with it, you're just like, ah, oh, well... That's nice. And, and a good litmus test for you, whether or not it's still good news, is what Jesus says in verse 15, repent and believe. That word repent, it's a hard one. We actually don't like that word in our culture. Uh, so I'll use a, a similar word to define it. Uh, are you persistently, constantly trying to reorient your life around Jesus and his priorities? That's a good definition for repent. Are you the center of your universe, or are you allowing Jesus, that you claim to be the center of the universe, to actually be the center of your universe? And that's very, very, very hard, of course, I admit that. Um, And it's nearly impossible, I'd say, unless this message is actually good news to you. Good news. If this is sweet good news to you, repentance, reorientation, will be a joy, a hard joy, but a joy. You'll see, it's an unusual story, but this story exists because God came to redeem and save people like me. He could have done it any number of other ways, but God became a man because he wanted to understand me and die for me. He's a king and he tells me what to do, but he's a good king, and I can trust him more than I can trust myself. And that's all good news. All right, let's pray together. Lord Jesus, thank you.